Our special broadcast tonight on KISU from the City Club of Idaho Falls and Alturas Institute event held on March 30th at University Place titled Russia's War on Ukraine. The presentation included remarks from Jeff Carr, former Russia and East European CIA analyst, and Dr. Karen Liebert, ISU adjunct professor and Ph.D. in Russian history. Liebert and Carr analyzed Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the possible Russian endgame. Alturas Institute President Dr. David Adler moderated this event and introduces tonight's guests. Tonight, as I say, we're very fortunate to have in our midst two wonderful experts who have joined us tonight, very gracious with their time. Our first speaker tonight uh, is Dr. Karen Liebert, a retired professor from Idaho State University who's taught a number of history courses, including the history of Russia, the Cold War in Russia, European affairs. Uh, she is a very well-known scholar, having received a PhD at University of Maryland, and also the recipient of a distinguished Ford Foundation research grant and a Fulbright research grant. And she has lectured all over the country, and we're very pleased that she can join us tonight. Our second speaker is Mr. Jeff Carr, whom you may know as the Senior Director of Public Affairs at the museum. He is also a former CIA analyst, having worked on the Russia desk and having worked intensively on East European affairs. He is a renowned researcher, and that's demonstrated by the fact that he delivered numerous presidential briefings to two administrations during his days at the CIA. He is also teaching humanities courses here at the local community college, and he's known for giving uh, presentations around the area on this sort of subject. We expect, by virtue of the public turnout and the likelihood that this crisis uh, will continue, that this won't be the last of this sort of presentation, but just the first of many. So ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you again for joining us. Let's welcome Dr. Karen Liebert uh, to our stage tonight, and then Jeff Carr will follow her presentation. Thank you. Thank you, David. And uh, I'd like to thank the City Club and El Turis Institute for sponsoring this event tonight. Like me, you're probably wake up every morning and hope to find some good news, worried about what's going to happen in the news in Ukraine. And I'm going to give you a very brief uh, insight into the historical origins of this war. And then in the question and answer session, I'll address uh, interests that you might have about what might happen in the future. This war we're seeing in 2022 began in 2014 began with the Russian takeover and subsequent annexation of the Crimean Peninsula and parts of eastern Ukraine. The real issue is Russia's perception of the West, that is, the USA in alliance with Europe as an enemy bent on keeping Russia weak and not allowing it to return to its former state of world importance and influence. Specifically, Russia doesn't want Ukraine, a large country on its border with many historical ties, to turn towards the West. All the Soviet-dominated states of 
Eastern Europe and those that gained independence when the Soviet Union broke apart in 1991, except Ukraine, Belarus, and Moldova have joined the European Union, and Ukraine wanted to join too. When Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, under pressure from Russia, turned away from an alliance with the EU, crowds gathered in Kyiv. This so-called Euromaidan lasted from late November 2013 to February 2014. And the photo is a picture of this Euromaidan, meaning Maidan meaning square, or public square. So public square where they came, called Independent Square, where they came to protest. And this is flying that EU flag. We want to be in the EU. Yanukovych fled to Russia, and Vladimir Putin ordered Russian troops to invade Crimea and eastern Ukraine. The result was the conquest and annexation of Crimea by Russia, and the aiding and abetting of separatist parties in eastern Ukraine. The war on the eastern border has continued from 2014 until now. There is no land connection between Crimea and Russia. So after annexing the Crimea in 2014, the Russians began construction of both a railway bridge and a motorway to connect mainland Russia with Crimea. Both bridges completed in 2020, but it's a costly supply route. You've got to go all the way south in Russia to get across it, and of course a bridge can always have an accident or something like that. This bridge is almost 12 miles long. It's the longest bridge in Europe. Another thorn in Putin's side about his bordering neighbors getting too friendly with the West seems to be NATO expansion. There were 12 original founding members of NATO. Now there are 30 members. 14 have entered 1990 and afterwards. If you look at the map, you can see it's advancing towards Russia. In fact, it's on the borders of Russia in some cases. In the 1990s, as the newly created Russian Federation took shape, NATO didn't seem to be a threat to Russia, and NATO did not see Russia as a major threat. Instead, ethnic conflict, nationalism, and terrorism seemed to be greater threats. In 1997, Russia and NATO signed a founding act on mutual relations, cooperation, and security. In this document, NATO and Russia confirmed that they did not consider themselves enemies, affirmed that they both respected the sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity of other states, and agreed to settle disputes peacefully. NATO pledged that it had, quote, no intention, no plan, no reason to deploy nuclear weapons on the territory of new members, including nuclear weapons storage sites. A permanent council was set up to promote the cooperation between NATO and Russia with regular meetings and even some joint military operations. Russia confirmed that it did not have any veto on NATO decisions. In 2008, NATO stated it, its intention to admit two more members in the future, Georgia and Ukraine, both former parts of the Soviet Union and both bordering Russia. From cooperation, 
beginning in 1997, to major hostility to NATO right now, what changed? The answer is Vladimir Putin. Here's Putin at a rally he held two weeks ago to celebrate the annexation of the Crimea eight years ago. The sign reads, for Russia. Putin has been in power for 22 years. President or prime minister, in both positions he had the power. There have been two amendments to the Russian Federation's constitution to allow him to retain the presidency until his current term expires in 2024, with the opportunity to run again for two more six-year terms. Putin is a student of Russian history. Even though he has his own interpretation on it, he is deeply influenced by it. Russia has expanded exponentially from the 17th century. In a recent interview in The New Yorker, Princeton historian Stephen Kotkin reminds us that, quote, even in the 19th century, Russia looked like this. It had an autocrat, it had repression, it had militarism, it had a suspicion of foreigners in the West. Kotkin also commented, for half a millennium, Russian foreign policy has been characterized by soaring ambitions that have exceeded the country's capabilities. This expansion has left Russia as a state that has been unable to mobilize its people without brutal coercion and never to have really been internally strong. The government collapsed twice in the 20th century, 1917, 1991, because it couldn't mobilize its people to defend it. As Putin has found, the easiest way to govern Russia is through autocracy or despotism, and the easiest way to rally the population is by arousing long-held fears of the West. Indeed, in the past two centuries, Russia has been invaded three times from the West. Napoleon, Imperial Germany in World War I, and Nazi Germany in World War II. The Communist Party, mainly led by Joseph Stalin, transformed the failed Russian Empire, made up of 90% peasantry, into the Soviet Union. By the 1950s, it was an industrial and nuclear weapons superpower. During the drive to extract the necessary resources to industrialize the country, Stalin starved four million people in Ukraine and more in the rest of Russia by requisitioning their produce so they had nothing left to eat. Part of the strategy of the Soviet Union to protect itself from enemies in the West after World War II was the creation of a line of buffer states completely dominated by the Soviet Union behind that Iron Curtain to protect Russia. Putin said in 2005, first and foremost, it is worth acknowledging that the demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. As for the Russian people, it became a genuine tragedy. Tens of millions of our fellow citizens and countrymen found themselves beyond the fringes of the Russian territory. Putin was a minor KGB officer in his foreign branch during the Cold War. After the disintegration of the Soviet Union, the KGB morphed into the FSB, 
1998, Putin was appointed to head that institution. As the Russian saying goes, once a KGB man, always a KGB man. Putin has the KGB attitude that every person is a potential spy or potential disloyal dissident, and that the West is the greatest enemy of all, bent on destroying the Russian nation, and it must be stopped by any means necessary. Putin portrays himself as a powerful man. He wants to be seen as tough and physically powerful. He's known for his many shirtless photo ops. In this, I think he's representing himself as the strong protector of Russia. In his first authorized autobiography, published just before his first election in 2000, he proudly labeled himself a thug, emphasizing his choice of violent action to solve problems. In 1999, he described how he would deal with terrorists. If they're in the airport, we will pursue them in the airport. If we capture them in the toilet, we'll waste them in the outhouse. Putin continues this kind of macho bluster. In his speech in February 23, 2022, announcing the invasion of Ukraine, oh, did I say the word invasion? That could get me 15 years in a Russian prison. He said, no matter who tries to stand in our way, all the more so to create threats for our country and our people, they must know that Russia will respond immediately and the consequence will be such as you have never seen in your entire history. Despite Putin's tough rhetoric, he's actually a very fearful person, not confident of his popularity, striking out at anyone whom he thinks is dangerous. This is actually a sign of weakness. Here are a few singing women calling themselves Pussy Riot and singing their punk prayer, Mother of God, send Putin away in a Moscow cathedral. These women were sentenced to two years in a penal colony. Alexander Litvinenko worked for the FSB, defected to London, wrote a book accusing the FSB of illegal violence by, among other actions, bombing apartment buildings in Moscow to make it look like terrorists were threatening the city and justifying a big crackdown by the state. Linfineco was poisoned in London by polonium-210 in 2006 and died a painful death from radiation poisoning in less than a month. Anna Polikovskaya was shot dead. She was a journalist writing the truth and Putin didn't like it. She was shot dead in her apartment building lobby after having been unsuccessfully poisoned uh, in 2006, and Litvinenko also accuses Putin of orchestrating that murder. Alexei Navalny is a rival presidential candidate to Putin. He was poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok and arrested and imprisoned upon his return to Russia. He was sentenced this month to a further nine years in a penal colony prison. Putin rigs the election, and he's still afraid of Navalny. And just like polonium-210, Novichok is not something you can buy on the street. That comes from secured state sources. 
Putin's foreign policy are also carried out with great violence, powerful force, and disregard for human life or suffering, a thug's response. Georgia, like Ukraine, was a country that had been part of the Soviet Union and had gained independence in 1991. On April 3rd, 2008, NATO made an announcement that Georgia and Ukraine would eventually become members of NATO. On April 16th, that's like a week later, a little over a week later, the Russian government recognized independence movements in Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which were within Georgian territory. War between Georgia and Russia broke out at less than four months later, the beginning of August 2008. This is not Mariupol. This is from the 2008 Russian invasion of Georgia. There, Putin used the same type of indiscriminate bombing he's using now in Ukraine to force Georgia to surrender. That came in 12 days. Immediately afterwards, the Russian government recognized Abkhazia and South Ossetia as independent countries. It seems likely that the rapidity of this military victory influenced Putin's thinking about going to war with Ukraine in 2014 and 2022. So there's a pattern here of conduct and policy decisions by Vladimir Putin. The importance of Mariupol is it's on the land route to Crimea. He wouldn't have to use those bridges or depend on them. The current war with Ukraine was a huge gamble by Putin. It reflects back to historian Stephen Kotkin's remark that Russia's soaring ambitions have exceeded the country's capabilities. The solutions that Putin envisioned do not seem to be achievable given the strong resistance of the Ukrainians. Here's a photo of customers lining up to purchase IKEA goods just before the store closed in Moscow. It's the IKEA logo in Russian and below that, for your home. The irony of this war was emphasized two weeks ago by Nina Khrushcheva, who was a university professor in the USA and the great-granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev. Everything that made Putin popular and strengthened Russia is being undone by this war. He had managed to build the Russian economy after its collapse into bankruptcy in the 1990s. He curbed the lawlessness that had plagued Russian citizens by bringing the oligarchs under his exclusive control. He managed to develop an economy and society that provided access to Western goods like IKEA and a moderate lifestyle with freedom to travel and participate in global culture. Russia was a member of or had a consulting role in most of the important world institutions and meetings. Russia hosted the Olympics in the Men's World Cup. That's all gone now, as both the West and Russia harden their positions. Hundreds of uh, Western corporations have pulled out of Russia on their own initiative, not by government order. NATO and the EU have become more united against Russia. And perhaps even more ominously for Russia, as Yale historian Timothy Snyder has pointed out, Putin has put Russia in a position of being a vassal state of China by severing its ties with the West. China has and will utilize Russia as a source of raw materials, but they will likely not treat it as an equal partner. Perhaps the greatest irony of all 
is that just when NATO members thought its mission to oppose Russian expansion was over after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's now facing its greatest threat ever from Russian expansion. Thank you very much. I welcome your questions about the future of what's going to happen in Ukraine when uh, we get to the question and answer session. First of all, I would like to thank uh, Dave and uh, the City Club of Idaho Falls and the El Tourist Institute for inviting me here today as well. Uh, it's really an honor and a particularly an honor to share the stage with Dr. Liebert, um, as someone who uh, I've admired for a very long time. Uh, we first met when I was a high school student here in Idaho Falls, and uh, she was one of the first people I ever met, possibly the very first, who shared my lifelong fascination with Russia and the Soviet Union. I'll also apologize for my voice. I'm getting over a long sickness. Hopefully it'll last, we'll see. It's a surreal experience when a niche subject that you've studied for years and years suddenly becomes not niche. And uh, it's been a lot of fun talking with Dr. Liebert and uh, my network of other Russia friends and watchers from around the world in the recent weeks. Uh, fun maybe isn't the right word. Surreal again, perhaps. I'll go on the record and say that I did not anticipate that things would get this far. I missed the call. I didn't think Putin would invade Ukraine last month. My old friends at the CIA got it right. I suspect they have an advantage. Um, but I missed the call, and interestingly, a lot of senior Russian officials also missed the call, which is telling. It's frankly just an audacious, and uncharacteristically massive mistake for Putin, the largest of his career by far. That said, it also fits squarely into a pattern of behavior that stretches back to the beginning of his presidency. And it's a pattern that we've all watched and known for a long time. It's just that I think it's always been hard to imagine that it would really come to this. And yet here we are. So that's where I want to start today with a hyperspeed history of the Putin presidency. I think hopefully my remarks will dovetail well, well with Dr. Liebert's. We tried to game this out a little bit. She covered some things, I'm going to cover some things, and I think it'll work out well. Anyhow, the, the history of the Putin administration is something that could and should take an entire semester, uh, of course, but we'll do our best to just hit the high points here. And something that I really want to emphasize and draw your attention to is the trajectory of events. Since it began in 2000, Putin's presidency has been characterized by a pattern of increasing risk tolerance and brazenness in both domestic and global affairs. There are so many interesting stories that we could tell here, uh, but I'll pull out a few points that represent this trend. So first, foreign affairs. Putin wrote into the presidency in 2000 on the strength of his response to a separatist movement in Chechnya, which is a, a republic within Russia. And, and it was, in fact, this strong response that included the words that you heard from Dr. Liebert about uh, wasting them in the toilet. Uh, those words were extraordinarily popular and helped evolve Putin to the presidency. That said, uh, his firmness in this matter was easy enough to justify. This was an internal uh, separatist movement within Russia. And frankly, it's not even foreign affairs, really, right? So that's, that's step one. So. I'm already going to deviate a little bit from my timeline here and give you a little star where there's a big inflection point. 
So um, if you recall, uh, you may or may not, during his first term, Putin played rather nicely with the West and didn't undertake many foreign adventures. But some events here would set off this trajectory uh, in a high direction. In addition to the expansion of NATO, which you've heard about, Putin watched Russia-friendly authoritarian uh, leaders toppled by liberal-minded protesters and politicians in his neighbors, Georgia, Kazakhstan, and most importantly, Ukraine, and the Orange Revolution of 2004. Now, coming off the heels of US adventures also, such as the invasion of Iraq in 2003, Putin seems to have understandably imagined that the United States was secretly behind these so-called color revolutions in his neighboring states, and that Putin might plausibly be next. Now, this also speaks to a long-standing Russian mentality that great powers of the world can and should define the course of world events. If it's something that's increasing democracy, the U.S. must be behind it. So the trajectory picks up a little here. In 2008, Putin sends troops into Georgia, as you've heard, to defend South Ossetia and Abkhazia, two little separatist groups that never really wanted to be part of Georgia anyway. Now, this was a big move for Putin, the biggest, of course, at, of his career at the time, but one that he could also justify pretty easily, and frankly, the international community didn't do anything about it. Now, starting in 2012, Putin takes another big step by getting involved militarily in Syria in support of the regime of Bashar al-Assad. This is big. This is his first major foray outside the former Soviet Union. And frankly, it turns out great for him. Russia steps up and plays a big role in world affairs, demonstrating its status as a global power, not just a regional one. And then in 2014, of course, he invades Ukraine for the first time and swiftly annexes Crimea and fuels a separatist movement in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. This is a straight-out land grab of territory that belongs to another country something that most of us in the Western world probably never thought we would see again after Hitler. Certainly not in Europe, at least. And once again, he largely gets away with it, with essentially no punishment except a few limited sanctions from the West, which are mostly just slaps on the wrists. And, and by the way, I should note that taking Crimea was enormously popular at home in Russia, not in Ukraine. Um, and then finally, in the last years of the last decade, Putin takes another step by beginning major initiatives to undermine Western values by committing major support to extremist political candidates and movements in Europe and the United States that he believed would damage those countries. And when we accuse him and point out the myriad evidence of this, he shrugs his shoulders and denies it with a smirk. Plausible deniability has been a big part of all of these um, actions for him. And so that takes us to today. But first, we have to go back and look at domestic affairs. Again, there's a lot of important stuff that I'm leaving out here. And so let's just agree that this is an oversimplification. Uh, but it's a representation of the, of the same trend that we saw in foreign affairs as well, this increasing risk tolerance and brazenness. We get surprised by him all the time. But we shouldn't, because the pattern is clear. The pattern is that we keep getting surprised. So Putin starts out his presidency right away threatening independent journalists covering the war in Chechnya. 
but he also says a lot of good things right away, early on, about opening up the country and focusing on improving Russians' lives, which does happen. His first two terms represented possibly the single greatest upturn in the Russian economy in the country's entire history. But that's mostly because the economy had been in a terrible state for decades, uh, since at least the 1970s. And it also helped that global oil prices coincidentally rose right during his first term, which flushed Russia with new cash. Russians, even everyday workers, are suddenly richer than ever, and Putin is more than happy to take the credit. The first big red flag event occurs here in 2008, at the end of Putin's second four-year term, when he makes it clear that whatever the Constitution says about term limits, he is not going anywhere. In non-competitive elections, he becomes the prime minister and Dmitry Medvedev becomes president, although Putin, as you heard, was still very much in charge the whole time. And then, almost immediately, he changes the constitution so he can return to the presidency in 2012 for two, now six-year terms. And essentially, the words, in a row, were added into the constitution. A president can serve no more than two terms in a row. The Russian public begins snidely referring to this maneuver between Putin and Medvedev as rakirovka, which means castling in chess. There's a lot of chess metaphors in Russian. This castling is extremely unpopular among liberal-minded Russians, and following mass protests in 2011 and 2012 over both of this, the rakirovka, as well as a, a blatantly rigged parliamentary election, Putin is scared. This is a defining moment in Putin's presidency, and I would argue possibly the most defining. He sees a new color revolution coming, and it's coming for him. And by the way, Arab Spring is also taking place at this time. He publicly blames Secretary of State Hillary Clinton for instigating it, because of course it's the US's fault somehow. And, uh, and in response to the protests, he introduces numerous reforms to beef up his security services, and empower them to crack down on dissent by any means necessary, including by shooting live ammunition into crowds. Notably, paranoia about who he can trust also causes him to start shrinking his circle of advisors at this time, a trend that has continued since this time. Cutting out the more liberal voices and relying more and more on the Siloviki, or the strong men from the security services. Amid all of these reforms, Boris Nemtsov is assassinated in 2015. Now, as you've heard, this is not the first nor the last assassination attempt by Vladimir Putin on critics. Nemtsov was a, an influential former politician and brave Putin critic. But this was a new step for him because Nemtsov was a very public figure and he was gunned down just steps away from the Kremlin in Moscow. It was blatant, it was and it was horrific. Incidentally, the BBC just a couple of days ago published the results of an investigation showing that the same FSB hit squad had been tailing Nemtsov in uh, the months leading up to his assassination was the exact same hit squad that had been tailing Alexei Navalny leading up to his attempted assassination in 2020, for what it's worth. It's, it's, it's the same people. So things continue to get more brazen even in 2020 when Putin suddenly announces another constitutional change. 
So we're going to throw out that in a row thing that we added. We, we didn't really like that. And because we don't really want future presidents to rule forever, right? But since this is about the future, and since this is now a whole new constitution, this was just one of a raft of all sorts of amendments that he sort of snuck this in. This will take effect at the next election. And so this is brand new, so everything is reset, starting now. So even though Putin has already served four terms, he is legally allowed to serve two additional six-year terms as president, theoretically taking him to 2036. The logic of this is stunning. And it really shows that how, how far he's come, frankly. Um, this was also something that I think none of us Russia watchers actually thought that he would do. It was just so much more blatant and obvious than other ways that he could have tried to remain in power. But he obviously felt very confident that he wouldn't be uh, struck down for it. Now finally, in the last few months, since 2021 especially, Putin has openly liquidated numerous independent media outlets private NGOs and organizations that investigate corruption and past abuses of power, including Alexei Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation, which is essentially his most powerful opposition. And, and getting rid of all of these critics and potential critics is pretty useful if you're planning something big that they're not going to like. And so here we are. All this begs the question, of course, what does Putin want, ultimately? What is this all driving at? Well. I would submit that it's rather simple. Like most authoritarian leaders, he wants to remain in power. And notably, he probably does see this as an existential issue, uh, because by now he's committed so many grievous injustices that it makes sense that he would feel rather uncomfortable and unsafe living in a very different regime. Fundamentally though, this is all driving at Putin, projecting power within Russia, and projecting Russian power throughout the world and thereby restoring Russian national pride, uh, much of which took a real beating uh, in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union. But all of this stuff, this, this is really just the dressing, right? He says these things about projecting power and, and returning Russia to the world stage, and he, he probably legitimately does believe in these things, but mostly they play really well with his base. And uh, his base has been conditioned for over a century to value strength and security over liberty and prosperity. And this is a base who has lived through numerous indignities, real and perceived, for most of their lives. So uh, by now I hope you've gotten a sense of this as we've both talked. But uh, I wanted to spend a couple minutes on Putin as a strategist. Once again, I've picked out just a few overriding themes that consistently characterizes his approach to global affairs, as well as domestic affairs. One is opportunism. This one sometimes surprises people. Putin often does not seem to set out on new initiatives or adventures with a clear end game in mind. He leverages developing situations to advance his own goals. Like a great chess player, he responds to his opponent by making defensive moves, in quotes, that also improve his attacking position. Perceived attacks by the West or his own opposition, however slight they may be, are perfect justifications for tightening control. Related to this is the letter of the law. Putin did study law, and he is meticulous in justifying his actions by working within Russian law. Of course, it helps when you have a supermajority in government, in the parliament, uh, control all of the judges, and your entire cabinet is terrified of you. 
So you can essentially make whatever laws you want. It's convenient. But he still, despite that, he goes through the motions. He, uh, he technically holds elections. He gets buy-in and signatures on his ideas. And um, though he basically does this at gunpoint, metaphorically, but he is constantly justifying things legally. As a corollary to this, Putin is also adept at exploiting the super confusing Russian legal code to catch his opponents up in crimes that they may not even know they've committed. And like a good trial attorney, he is adept at pointing out alleged hypocrisies among his opponents, especially the West. NATO bombed Serbia in 1999, so don't lecture us about Ukraine. Look at how the U.S. treats its minorities. Don't talk to us about how we treat ours. He is essentially the king of what we now know as called whataboutism. On that note, number three, heard about this a little bit already, undermining the West, and especially the U.S., is a major priority for Vladimir Putin. And that kind of makes him sound like a cartoon villain, right? Like he's just bent on our destruction. We don't want to believe that. It doesn't make sense. But in fact, this actually serves numerous really useful purposes for Putin. First, and most obviously, the West is a useful outside enemy that Russians have already been bred to hate and who Putin can blame for any and all troubles that take place in his own country. It is a perfect scapegoat and a wonderful distraction when things aren't so great at home. He's not the only politician that does that, right? Undermining the West also chips away at its hegemony in world affairs. This idea of unipolar control that the United States has, as opposed to the more balanced Cold War as he saw it, now, challenging the West harms the ability to enforce the rules-based order that has kept the U.S. on top of the world since World War II. And when you live your life outside the rules, as Putin does, you don't want them enforced. And finally, I think it's also worth noting that foreign affairs is just plain more fun and interesting for him. He's a KGB operative, right? And once a KGB man, always a KGB man. That's all he ever really wanted to do growing up. And, frankly, running a dreary country is kind of a dreary job. So, number four is propaganda. It's difficult to overstate just how integral this is for Putin and just how good the Russians are at this and always have been. Controlling the narrative is integral to everything Putin does, and, and it insulates him from the worst effects of potential failure. In fact, when Russians occupied the Ukrainian city of Kherson a couple of weeks ago, one of the first things they did was cut off all Ukrainian TV and start piping in RT, Russia's main propaganda network aimed at foreign countries. That shows in America too, by the way. Hopefully not in the last few weeks at least. Um, and at home, he has imposed severe penalties, as you've heard, against journalists in Russia who talk about less convenient truths about the war or even use the word war in reference to what's happening now in Ukraine. It's instead a spetsoperatsia, or a special operation, which is actually an old KGB term, to rid Ukraine of Western-style democracy, and sure, let's call them Nazis for good measure, right? Many, and, and possibly most Russians, have no idea that cities are being destroyed in Ukraine, and that thousands of innocent people are dying. They don't know. They won't know until something changes. The Kremlin exercises full, daily control over state media. It, they don't just sort of oversee it. There are meetings every single morning 
to talk about what's going on TV. And uh, this state media is naturally a really useful window for the rest of us to watch what Putin really cares about and what he wants his people to be focused on. And he often hits on a couple of underlying themes. There are more than this, but one of them is that Russia is a fortress, constantly encircled by enemies and besieged especially by the decadent and morally bankrupt West who are coming for your traditional orthodox Christian values. It's worth noting also that these are not values that Putin has ever necessarily been known to show in his own life, but they are useful rhetorically. Another is essentially that objective truth doesn't really exist, no matter the sourcing. So you either believe our facts or the enemy's facts. And it's a terribly destructive mindset that I think we can see in, in other places as well. Finally, after all this, you might still be asking the question, reasonably, why Putin felt the need to take this even riskier, more brazen and destructive, murderous step of invading Ukraine now. Why now? Why this? It's within his patterns, in most ways. But there are differences as well. His work justifying this legally and strategically was pretty shoddy this time around compared to his past adventures. This attack on Ukraine was 100% unprovoked. I suspect we'll get more into this in the Q&A, and I welcome that, but I wanted to offer a couple of quick thoughts now about why he may have chosen to take this step right now. First of all, he's clearly received bad intelligence that massively underestimated the Ukrainian resistance, underestimated Western resolve, and overestimated Russia's own military capabilities. He has been increasingly paranoid and isolated since 2012, as we talked about, but especially since the pandemic began in 2020. He clearly believed his own propaganda and had no one left around him to set him straight. He has also probably been thinking about his legacy among the pantheon of Russian leaders, who you saw in Dr. Liebert's map, became great by expanding the territory. Ivan the Great, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, that's why they're great. It's because they expanded Russia. He almost certainly judged that the U.S. was too internally divided, and he watched with glee the fractures between the U.S. and its NATO allies in recent years. And then after the pullout of Afghanistan a couple of months ago, there was this proof that the U.S. is tired of foreign wars. No one's going to stop him. And crucially, he was also looking at a road to 2036 and was looking probably a little rockier than he might have hoped for. So something needed to change. First, even before the war, the Russian economy was a ticking time bomb. Putin is a good money saver and has made some good economic decisions in some ways. What he's not done is diversify the economy by any stretch of the imagination, and it is overwhelmingly reliant on one industry, the fossil fuels that the rest of the world has uh, pledged to forsake and move away from. Similarly, he is looking at terrible demographic problems and brain drain. Even right before the war, uh, so in 2021, 10% of Russians, this is millions of people, tens of millions of people, said they were taking active steps to emigrate out of the country. And nearly 50% of Russians aged 18 to 24 expressed an interest in leaving. Nearly half 
of all young people. You know, the people who are interested in leaving are likely to be the people who are supposed to be propping up your economy. Finally, Putin has been having increasing difficulty controlling the message. Now that in the last three to five years, media consumption in Russia has flipped on its head, and more Russians are now getting their news from the internet with its wide variety, rather than TV, which again is completely controlled by the Kremlin. And especially after Putin came out and argued that Slavic culture and democracy are incompatible with each other, there's nothing that makes him look worse at home than when struggling Russians suddenly find out that their Slavic brothers and sisters, their family members in Ukraine, with whom they have so much in common, are embracing democracy and flourishing. By waging war on his neighbor, he has now greatly exacerbated these difficulties for himself. And uh, what may come out of that uh, is something that I look forward to talking about in the Q&A session, uh, as well as your questions about anything else. Thank you both very much for that fascinating exploration of historical, cultural, and political factors that helped to explain the rise of Putin and perhaps his interest in extending Russian domination. I know your remarks are greatly appreciated by this intellectually sophisticated and curious audience that's turned out tonight uh, to engage uh, with you in, this, in a vigorous Q&A. Uh, you've both been steeped in documents historical documents, political documents for many years. Uh, Jeff, with your pursuit of the MA in Russian Studies at Stanford, Karen, with your PhD from University of Maryland and your subsequent studies. Let's turn immediately to the big question on the minds of many, and that is a point that you referenced in the latter part of your remarks, Jeff. What is Putin's end game? Will he be satisfied with the decimation of Ukraine or will he want something else? Uh, Jeff, will you take this question first, and then Karen, please? Sure. Uh, if I were to put this into uh, a sort of analytic judgment statement that we might make at the CIA, I would say that uh, Vladimir Putin probably can and will push continued military escalation in Ukraine and intensified repression at home, despite massive long-term costs to Russia and risks to his own regime. And exactly what the end game turns out to be, again, is, is, is hard to say. He himself may not know at this point what that looks like. I think we can posit a couple of potential scenarios for how things go in Ukraine, and um, I think uh, annexation of the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts here would be a, a potential victory. He needs a way to claim victory and sell that victory back at home, right? Taking Donetsk and Luhansk was actually the initial stated aims of the special operation, as he calls it, in that incredible rambling speech that he made about four weeks ago. Uh, this would be one potential scenario, uh, fraught with difficulties, of course, because, well, they don't technically control all of this area just yet, right? There's plenty more, including the city of Mariupol, falls within the Donetsk Oblast also. And uh, you've seen that Mariupol... Uh, among other cities, are not eager to become part of Russia and are not eager to have war at their doorstep. And so presumably an insurgency, uh, a costly insurgency, both in time in terms of lives and, and money, would still be on the table. I do think 
it's worth considering another potential scenario uh, that Putin goes at here is with essentially a division of Ukraine into West and East and, uh, and a frozen conflict. Frankly, frozen conflicts are a tactic that Putin has used in several other places, including Georgia and Moldova and, um, well, and Ukraine since 2014, in order to hobble that country, uh, in this case Ukraine, and make sure that it is constantly focused on fighting its own separatists rather than doing what it needs to do to democratize and move toward the West. So it is possible that Putin may decide that he can get away with just that. I think it's notable to point out, too, there may be a, a shift right now, just in the last couple of days of the war, in strategy. I think it's, it's yet to be seen whether this will come to pass, but there have been whisperings of Russians pulling out of Kyiv and, and Chernihiv uh, up there in the north, uh, in where, where Russians have faced extraordinary resistance from Ukrainians, in order to focus back here on the Donbass, on the eastern part of the country. And it, it does make sense that he might do that, uh, because, frankly, his forces are spread thin right now. They're not doing super well up in the north. So to cut the losses where he can, of course, he'll never call it a loss. In fact, he'll probably still keep a few people there to bomb indiscriminately. But uh, to, to focus back over here and take as much of this as possible by force Maybe something that we're looking at now. We'll just have to see what happens on the ground. Putin has essentially said this is what he's going to do, but you know, you can't really believe what he says. So, I, I think there are a couple of potential endgame scenarios, and I, I do think because you asked the question also about proceeding beyond Ukraine as well, that I would hope. So I'm going to be an, an optimist here that the the stiffness of the resistance of both the West and Ukraine would probably cause him to think twice about proceeding beyond those borders, that having been said, Putin knows only one direction. He does not back down from a fight, and if he calculates that that is the only way to save what he has accomplished so far, then there's, there's no telling what might stop. Thank you. Karen, please. Yeah, but I agree that that's, that's right, that he's got to come out with some sort of a face-saving result. So... Maybe he'll be able to say, yeah, I mean, okay, I can stop this military operation because I'm such a great guy, right? And so uh, I, I think the idea of maybe Ukraine having to cede the territory in the Donbass might end up what's, what's going to happen. If I were Ukraine, I'd never give up the land along the coast if I could help it, because so many people have died in Mariupol. You, I don't think Zelensky can give that up. He's, Zelensky has already offered neutrality. I think that's a big step, and that, that is something Putin wanted, so that could be seen as a victory. Um, I also want to just bring up the historical precedent of the Winter War with Finland. In 1939, after Hitler began his invasion of Poland, Joseph Stalin invaded Finland. Finland had been a part of the Russian Empire, and it became independent in 1917, 1918, when Ukraine tried to become independent and was put down by the Bolsheviks. 
So Finland became independent, but it's right there on the border, and you know it's got the north stuff. And so uh, Stalin invaded, thinking it's a quick war, and he met resistance from the Finns, who did just what the Ukrainians are doing. They fought with Molotov cocktails. They got out there with their guns, and it wasn't a quick fix. They even had a little puppet government in Russia and Soviet Union to come in. But eventually, in three months, the Finns had to give in. They, they recognized that there was a lot of bloodshed, and so they ended up ceding this territory. This is still a part of Russia. It's never come back to Finland. But they settled the war and they maintained their independence, whereas it's pretty clear he was going to put in a puppet government. So perhaps ceding the Donbass or parts of the Donbass and Ukraine declaring neutrality might, might work. Um, and also, I think, the Ukrainians just have to keep it up. And I, was, I listened to a podcast just recently. It was on Fresh Air by a Time reporter, Simon Schuster. And he said that we're getting a lot of weapons in there. And it's, it may enable the Ukrainians to take control of the air. And they, you know, I think Putin, he can't keep this up forever already. He's trying to pay Syrians. He's offering Syrians $7,000 to come and fight in Ukraine. So he's running out of soldiers if he tries to get more soldiers. And if Russian mothers find out how many, there was another podcast on BBC. I don't want to go on too long, but a uh, captured Russian soldier. And the reporter called his family in Russia, and they had no idea he was even in Ukraine. So people are starting to find out, and Putin has better watch out that a lot of people have relatives in Ukraine, and there is a lot of connection there. And so people are finding out, they're going to find out what's happening to their relatives. So the news will get out. He needs to kind of wrap it up fairly soon, I think. That's great, thank you both. <laughs> As we contemplate this matter of scenarios, uh, two questioners wonder, is this question complicated by the uncertain and yet fearful possibility that Putin might resort to the use of weapons of mass destruction, including uh, nuclear weapons? And if so, uh, when does Putin cross a line that would draw NATO into battle and perhaps even the United States? So, Kieran, please. Okay. I'm, I'm hoping he doesn't. We had that a long period of having nuclear weapons in the Cold War, and they weren't really used except that first time in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A lot of generals asked American presidents if they could have nuclear weapons in the Korean War, in the Vietnam War, and the president always said no. So I'm going to be hopeful on that. I think it would cross a red line. Recently, Putin was speaking to a club in uh, Moscow, and he said, we will not use nuclear weapons first. But if they use them first, then we're going to die and go to heaven as martyrs, and they're going to be, they're going to get wiped out so fast they won't even have time to regret it. So he did pledge he wasn't going to use them first, and I can only hope. Uh, I had one creative idea. I don't know what you think about this, Jeff. 
If they use nuclear weapons or chemical weapons, I suggest a cruise missile on a military site in Belarus. And it's an ally. Troops have come in that way. And then that might make Lukashenko a little scared. And also, I think it might make Putin have to defend Belarus. But that was just, yeah, I don't think I have a line to Biden to mention that. But anyway, <laughs> it was my creative idea. Okay. I like yeah, it. No, sorry. that's a good idea. <laughs> so, um, first on the question of nuclear weapons, I, I completely agree with Dr. Lieber with that. I think. Nuclear war is not something that Putin wants. It's not something that he would seek. Uh, I think he has found usefulness in threatening it, of course, as, as has been shown for years, although never more so than now. And so I, I think he knows that nuclear war is no way to save Russia. In fact, that would destroy Russia. And I think the only way that he probably gets to that point is if he believes that it is truly the only method left to him, which, which is something that I think that we in the West need to keep in mind. We need to be consistently offering him off-ramps that allow him to claim victory in some small way. And, and I, I recognize that's very politically difficult for anyone in the West to look weak in the face of this sort of thing. But if it prevents a nuclear war, then it may be worthwhile. Thank you. Given the fact that you both think it's unlikely, without offering any guarantees, but you think it's unlikely that Putin would resort to the use of weapons of mass destruction, what then deters the West from entering Ukraine on behalf of the Ukrainians and in the name of democracy to counter Russia, if in fact there's no real fear of the use of nuclear weapons? To you first, Gary. Well, that might be a real fear then that would change the game, wouldn't it? So I think that's one reason that right now we have the moral high ground, and I think we better stick with it. Um, we have our NATO obligations. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. This is so weak and Putin that it, it's sad to see the destruction. But I, I would say that's not the only reason not to go into Ukraine is because, because he could, actually. <laughs> that could be his red line. We should supply them with the weaponry that they need, is my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, well, first of all, on the question of what could stop him, the, the, the question of how the nuclear button actually gets pushed is a little bit different in Russia than it is in the United States, and it would take sign-off by a couple of other people as well, who hopefully would put their consciences on the line. Uh, although I know who a couple of these people are, not personally, uh, and, and that's doubtful. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that's absolutely right. I think that could very well be a red line for nuclear chemical weapons uh, if, if NATO troops enter, uh, enter Ukraine. At the same time, you know, NATO has done a pretty good job in its history of adhering to the policies that it set out in the Washington Agreement that, that founded NATO, which is that, you know, we we support and defend each other, other NATO members, other NATO allies, and, you know, we also fight for, uh, you know, other good values elsewhere, but there's a reason that we hadn't let Ukraine into NATO thus far, and that is exactly this. That is, that is because it would be such an obvious red line that would almost be begging for him to launch World War III against us. And, and I think if NATO troops set foot 
in Ukraine or even set up a no-fly zone over Ukraine, that is very possibly the pretext for World War III. Thank you on that grim note. Uh, the, uh, the world is looking for a potential settlement on the assumption that at some point Russia will cease its invasion. Uh, in your views, what does a settlement look like? What might it entail? And would it possibly include the idea of war crimes tribunals? I did a little bit of thinking about this war crimes tribunal, and I'd say there's absolutely no doubt that war crimes have occurred, but I do not think it's a good idea to have a war crimes tribunal. First of all, maybe we'd have to start with George W. Bush. So we maybe can't be too holier than now, but I don't see that it serves any purpose. It definitely served a purpose in Germany in 1945 and on, because the Germans had been defeated. It was in a way to expose the Germans to what actually their government had done, and it was a statement of where they should go in the future. So, and also we spent an awful lot of resources and a lot of people had died. It's kind of like we got to punish somebody about this. So I think it served a purpose there. I don't think this would serve a purpose and it's certainly not going to get rid of Putin. I, I don't think it would have an influence in Russia. So I don't think it's a wise idea. Yeah, it's an interesting question and I, I, I do think that one thing that a war crimes tribunal could potentially serve to do would be to spook some of the other military and security leaders that have been part of this Russia, that they may in fact be implicated in this, as well as Putin, and it may work to peel them off of Putin, but in, in reality, agreed that the, the, the precedents that, that would have to be set would be, I mean, this would be beyond anything that the International Criminal Court has done before. And, uh, and anyway, the International Criminal Court works extraordinarily slowly. And, um, and, and Russia, actually neither Russia nor the United States are even technically parties to it right now. And so there are a number of things that would have to take place first. I agree with, with the way you pose the question. I think that's absolutely a non-starter in terms of a negotiation agreement between Ukraine and Russia. Watching the, the negotiations thus far, at least the degree to which we've been able to have some insight into them. There has been some movement, and, and actually perhaps more than I would have expected at the outset. I, I do think that Zelensky offering not to join NATO, uh, at least to put a moratorium on that for several years, is, is a wise move, and frankly NATO wasn't going to let them in anyway, so it's a pretty easy you know, offering to make. At the same time, Kremlin negotiators do not often enter negotiations in good faith. An MO that has uh, characterized the negotiations uh, since 2014 uh, in the Donbass have been, you know, Russia sometimes asking for incredible concessions, which it knows that there's no way that Ukraine will accept. And then it can walk away and say, well, we tried. You know, they're the ones who don't want to come to the table. And that plays well at home and it's easy to do. As a follow up, if in fact, there is no accountability for Russia, no war crimes tribunals, then do we say that international law is further diminished, that it doesn't matter uh, much as a deterrent when powerful nation states simply choose to do uh, what they might? 
What's that future of an international order, if you can even use that term? What does that mean? Uh, that's a good question. And um, I, I would say that I don't think that the International Criminal Court is necessarily the only lever that the international community can use, of course. I, I think the introductions of economic penalties, such as sanctions, has been an interesting innovation uh, in the past decade or two. And, and perhaps we'll get into this more, but I, I do think sanctions and other such economic policies are absolutely worthwhile. And I think a nice creative way to get the international community's point across in a non-military way. So I, I do think that this involves probably a recalibration of what this international order looks like and, and what tools and weapons are at its disposal. But I, I think the, the order itself is something that we absolutely have to continue to believe in and continue to, uh, to put our feet in. Thank you. Karen, any yeah, thoughts yeah, on that I, I definitely agree with that. I just think, unfortunately, you can't just hold everyone accountable all the time. It, even if we try to adhere to certain standards, uh, it's, you can't find them all guilty when they've done bad things. <laughs> But we should keep trying when it's possible and it, when it serves a, a good interest. We might flip the script and ask, uh, can, can you hold anyone accountable anymore? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So a number of questions are, are probe a very important point. Uh, at the end of this uh, invasion of Ukraine, if and when that occurs, does Putin remain in power? And what remains of his strength at home once, if and when, Russians learn of the atrocities he's committed. Jeff, will you start, please? Sure, happy to. Yeah, I've, uh, I've prepared some data on this. I figured this question might come up. And because uh, it's a good question, right? What happens to Putin at home after this is all over? And I, I think it's worth noting, first of all, that for the time being, he appears to be quite safe. He probably faces no immediate risks to his rule, but he is going to have to increase repression of, of knowledge, other things that come along with that, in order to insulate himself as the long-term effects of this war continue to mount and the economic difficulties that are kind of come out as a result of this as well. This war is going to make things so much harder for the rest of his term, however long that may be. So I, I, could, I don't want to take too much time here, but... In considering, real briefly, the, the, the groups of people who might be able to challenge him, frankly, there's not a lot to hang your hat on right now. Putin has done an immaculate job of, uh, of, of reducing his opposition to smithereens. We have oligarchs, of course, that everyone's heard of, these, these wealthy people who have become wealthy, super wealthy, in fact, by, you know, the, there's this grand bargain that Putin allows them to become super wealthy off the back of the state, and then they agree to support him, basically. But this is not a group that has any sort of cohesion whatsoever. We've seen also how fractured his own, uh, fractured isn't the right word, how weak his own government is. I, I don't know if anybody saw the National Security Council meeting in Russia when he completely dressed down uh, one of his intelligence heads. And uh, there's new intel that's even come out today that's talking about rifts with his defense minister, who has been one of his closest friends for years and years, and, and frankly, there's no one around him that is not terrified of him, or so it seems. 
the one group that I think you could put a little bit of interest in is this Siliviki, this strong men group, right? This is the group of FSB uh, and other security officials. There is a history of the KGB in 1991 trying to pose a coup against Gorbachev because they believed that they needed to do that to save the Soviet Union from a bad leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. And in, in theory, if the FSB turned against Putin, they, I mean, they have resources, of course. So I think that's something to watch for. On the more depressing side of things, looking at popular uprisings, Putin has done such a great job also of, I sound admiring, it's not meant to be taken that way, he's done uh, an impressive job at upping the penalties for any sort of dissent whatsoever at home, including just in the last war. But this has been building up for, for years so people are, people are afraid to speak out. Uh, frankly, also, uh, there's the question of who among the people would. There's his approval ratings right here. I, I thought might be of interest. Putin watches his approval ratings extraordinarily closely. And, and this is from the Levada Center, which is a great polling organization in Russia. And I know you're probably thinking, oh, polling in Russia. But no, actually, they, they do a lot of good work to, to try to root out potential inconsistencies and putting the thumb on the scale too much. So there's reason to believe this, and, and sorry, there's a little Russian here. This is approve and don't approve. And uh, so this is his entire presidency. So first of all, notably, it's been uh, above, I think 59 was the lowest point ever, and that was COVID, for his entire career. And the biggest uptick right here, 20 points when he annexed Crimea. So this was huge for him. He saw how important, how popular it was, how well it worked. And then the biggest downfall came in 2018 when he made a very unpopular but necessary law for his economy to raise the pension age, which was really low. I don't remember exactly how low it was. But. So he, he watches this, and he takes care of, of how he is perceived. So notably, 71 is where he sits last month, just before the war started. And this 71% of people who support Putin are his base of largely elderly, rural, less educated, not entirely of course, but uh, these are also the people, his base, this 71% who are going to be best insulated economically from the sanctions and from the corporate pullouts that are in Russia right now. They're already living close to the land, they don't live luxury lifestyles, they don't care that the Nike store is gone and they've seen worse. That said, the growing middle class, especially in Moscow and St. Petersburg, the young, the educated, their lives are about to get a whole lot worse. And those are the ones who have been out on the street time and time again anyway. The trouble there is that this is a rather small group and their leader is now in prison for probably nine more years. Point is, there's not a lot of people who can challenge him right now. There are certain things that we would look for in the future, but I've talked plenty about that, so I'll leave that for now. Thank you, Jeff. And let me just, in light of these questions, let me rephrase the question for you slightly. Uh, do you believe that it's an unlikely that there would be a coup or even an assassination attempt against Oh, him? Oh, yeah, I do. But I, I'd like to just give a little historical perspective. Please. Stalin was a leader very similar to Putin. He eliminated his enemies, he ran the propaganda state, etc. He wasn't removed from power until he died. 
And then when he died, some of his associates, his oligarchs, denounced what he had done. But it wasn't until after he died where they could say what they felt. And the, probably the most important thing about Stalin and his popularity is he won World War II. He beat the Germans. They lost 27 million people in World War II. And that made him popular. It might depend on whether Putin loses this war or comes out of it pretty good. Another leader was Tsar Nicholas, the last Tsar of Russia. He lost World War I, and he was, the army lost confidence in him, and they refused to fire on the demonstrators in St. Petersburg and Moscow, and that was the end of the Tsar. So there's just a couple scenarios. The, the last one is Khrushchev, who was actually very peacefully removed from office, partly because of the Cuban Missile Crisis and what was perceived as his failure to stand up to the USA and that he lost. And Kennedy made some concessions to him, even though basically he had to take the, the weapons out of Cuba. But they were secret, and that was not, not, that didn't go down well in Russia. So just to think about those as potential scenarios that could happen. Thank you. Here's a, here's a quick question for you. What was the rhetorical utility in Putin's use of the term denazification? Okay, that's, um, as I say, the Russians fought World War II and had tremendous losses, and it's not just 27 million people. The Germans evaded all the way to Stalingrad. They didn't get Moscow, they didn't get Leningrad, destroyed Stalingrad, just like Mariupol. They destroyed Leningrad, just like Mariupol. Putin's older brother starved in that, in that siege. So, so fighting the Nazis is something that is so important to the Russians, and they celebrate it all the time. When I was there, people, Brides were taking their bouquet to the tomb of the unknown soldier outside the Kremlin. It was so important. I mean, and that's in like in the 90s. So it, it, it is so vivid for them. So if you call somebody a Nazi, that's the worst thing you can say about them. And it just, you know, revives things. And recently I happened to meet someone from Azerbaijan. And she just called the enemies there Nazis. You know, I mean, that's just the worst thing you can say. So that's why he said that. That just really means something to people because they lost so many people in the war. Thank you. Jeff, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, and when I lived in Russia in the following decade, brides and grooms were still getting okay. their pictures taken. So it's, yeah. they still go to the, and hop on the tanks and all of the World War II monuments to take their pictures. But I think the only thing that I could add to that, too, is, is that, you know, because there has to be a kernel of truth somewhere in this, right? And uh, it's that there was, a, not to go into too much detail, a man named Stepan Bandera, who was a Ukrainian nationalist during World War II and a Nazi collaborator. And he has been, since then, a very controversial figure in Ukraine. And some people love his legacy, some people hate his legacy, 
But Putin has always been able to point to that uh, Bandera and his his organization, uh, which I, I don't recall the name, but it had to do with Ukrainian nationalism, to say that, oh look, Ukrainian nationalism, henceforth and forevermore, is tainted by ties to Nazism. And frankly, this was only a very small part, and um, again, this, you know, this was a long time ago, and uh, there's essentially no hint of Nazism in Ukraine now, at least no more than anywhere else in the world, and obviously it bears mentioning that Volodymyr Zelensky, the president, is Jewish, which is, it's, it's weird that he would go there uh, because of that fact, but I think that's some additional context. Thank you both. As our time together begins to wind down, uh, let, let's turn to a question on the minds of many. Has the world just engaged in a new Cold War? Jeff first. Probably. I think so, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say, and, you know, that doesn't mean that this new Cold War, if that's what it is, looks the same as the last Cold War, but I think, I think Putin is going to have to close his fortress uh, now. Obviously, IKEA is gone, and, and all these other companies are gone, and, and that's not nothing. And in fact, I think the, the, a lot of these multinational corporations leaving Russia is, in some ways, even more important than the sanctions. These are shipping companies that are deciding not to deliver medicine now to Russia. And all sorts of, you know, Russian aircraft rely on Western parts. And there's all sorts of ways that Russia depends on the West that it is no longer going to be able to rely on now. And it is going to have to reorient some of its industries, some of its economy. And I think as long as the West keeps up the pressure that... Putin doesn't have much of a choice. I think, I think the Cold War potentially ends, and this sounds like a good thing, but I, I think the Cold War, the new Cold War potentially ends if we let up the pressure, which I don't think we should do. Mm-hmm. That sounds like, like it's going to last a pretty long time then. Kieran? Um, I, I say the Cold War was uh, two superpowers with nuclear weapons facing each other, and I didn't think, I thought it ended in 1991 because we were not enemies anymore, so we thought. Uh, But now I think it is. It's definitely a new Cold War. It's two nuclear powers facing each other right now, and then China also a nuclear power. But the thing about the Cold War was, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, we really tried to ramp down the fear of nuclear weapons. So first you had the test ban treaty, then you had the non-proliferation treaty, then you had SALT, which was uh, the limitation, and then we had START, which was reduction. We had OSCE formed uh, in Helsinki in 1975 that actually kind of solidified the boundaries of World War II, where we actually said, okay, East Germany can be... We never actually settled World War II in a treaty until 1975, where we said, okay, boundaries of Eastern of East Germany, well, we'll have to accept that. But then we started... Then there were a few alarms when NATO would run some exercises and the Russians would get kind of excited that maybe this was like a prelude to a nuclear war. And so we started telling each other when we were going to do an exercise. So we really tried to ramp it down, and Putin has just ruined that whole international regime. Now we're going to have to start all over to try to limit it. 
as we contemplate how the world picks up the pieces, uh, Americans and indeed the entire world looks at the horrific humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. What should happen with the refugees from Ukraine? Karen? You know, there were 11 million displaced persons after World War II. So now we have, what, 4 million outside Ukraine and 10 million inside Ukraine. In the Winter War with Finland, everybody was evacuated uh, from that area that wanted to, and I, when that's settled, that's good. Uh, I think we just have to step up and absorb these refugees uh, as much as possible. I think most Ukrainians are gonna wanna go back home when this is over, so, but they've gotta do something in the meantime. So I think countries, and probably mostly Europe, and some U.S., if they want to come here, should step up and that we should be spending money on helping these people settle in and try to continue with their lives until this thing is settled. Thank you. Jeff, your thoughts? Um, agreed. I don't have much to add there. Uh, just that I think, as, as Dr. Liebert noted earlier, I think it's important for the West to maintain the moral high ground. And I think part of that would be taking care of these poor refugees from both Ukraine and Russia, should there be some uh, in the West. Uh, and of course, there already are some to the best of our ability. And I think this is, first and foremost, just the right thing to do. And secondly, I, I think it serves a strategic purpose as well. You know, the more, the more ties there are between people who have left Russia and Ukraine uh, with the West, they see their family being treated well in the West, and they see Again, by contrast, what's happening in Russia, that contrast becomes praised. Thank you both very much. As we bring down the curtain on our program tonight, many in our audience are, are interested in books and news sources and podcasts that they might turn to to become better informed. And so as we approach this last question for tonight, Jeff, will you take a, the first shot at that, please? Sure. So uh, as far as news sources to keep up on uh, what's happening in the war, I have, well, uh, if you speak Russian, there's a, a great a site called Medusa uh, that still exists because it's based in Latvia and it hasn't been shut down yet. But uh, I have found uh, British media to, to have done a wonderful job. Uh, the Guardian is my go-to newspaper for this. BBC has done a wonderful job as well. And, and frankly, the New York Times has put out some excellent uh, long articles recently that really take an analytic look on, on this. Book-wise, one that I know uh, that we had talked about uh, recently that we had both read, if you're interested in a, in a Putin biography, there's a great one called Man Without a Face by Masha Gessen. And she is a Russian-American journalist who knows both sides very well and worked as a journalist in Russia for many years and has, I think, a very, a lot of good insight on who Putin is and has been from the beginning of his life. And by the way, she's uh, just written a recent article for The New Yorker. So thank you very much. And Karen? Um, I've been listening to podcasts on Fresh Air and uh, On Point that have been pretty good. I listen to BBC News every day, so I get that source. But I could go on on the books all day, but... Here's the first one. This is, <laughs> Mr. Francis has said, you should not graduate from high school unless you've read this book. And I, I really think if you haven't read it for a while, you might appreciate reading it because 
he's changing history and he's using language. Like, you can't say the word war. You can't say the word invasion. All right, that's all in here. George Orwell saw it. This is about the Cold War called Arsenals of Folly, and it's, it's really about the whole nuclear aspect of the Cold War and how Gorbachev and Reagan got so close to banning all nuclear weapons, and Reagan couldn't give up Star Wars, even though H.W. Bush did. But he stumbled on that, and Gorbachev said, I can't do it, but it's a great, read. It's really easy to read. This is one I like, oh, sorry, about Europe today called Cafe Europa Revisited by Slavenka Drakulic. She's writing about what's the problem of the former Soviet states in Europe today. For example, she starts out with, there are products that are sold in, in the eastern part of the EU that are not, they're the same price and the same packages are sold in the Western EU, but they're inferior because they're trying to keep the price so people can afford it in, say, Croatia, Hungary. So she explains it and she also explains why people who had some kind of European background, like Croatians, which is what she is, can be better refugees in Europe than people that come from a non-European background, which might help explain what happened in, in that Syrian war thing. You got the man with, uh, without a face. Um, this is about Pussy Riot, if you're interested in Pussy Riot, the whole history of these women and what they decided to do, words will break cement. I could go on, I hope you don't mind. Uh, the Dead Hand and The Oligarchs by David Hoffman are both uh, about recent. Soviet history. Nina Khrushcheva took a journey across Russia and wrote the book In Putin's Footsteps. Uh, there's a book called The Long Hangover, Putin's New Russia and the Ghosts of the Past. Gary Kasparov, the chess champion, wrote a book about he tried to run for president and every time he tried to hold a rally they shut down the venue and so he never could get a presidential candidate campaign going. That's called Winter is Coming. Timothy Snyder has written a book called The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, and America. I really like his work. What he's trying to say is 1991, the Soviet Union fell, and we all thought, triumph of democracy and capitalism. But it turned out not to be true. <laughs> so why did we think that, and why are we just saying whatever happens to capitalism is probably okay and everything is good. Uh, Red Famine, a book by Ann Applebaum, is about the starvation in the Ukraine that I mentioned in the 30s. And then a Russian guy who helped with the economic turnaround in the 90s when they were trying to recreate an entire country from this failed Soviet Union, Yigar Gaidar, has written a book called Collapse of an Empire Lessons for Modern Russia. I'm reading that right now, and he's just trying to explain what happened, and he was there. So come up and look at the books if you like afterwards, and you know, there's lots of great things to learn. So thank you very thank much. Thank you. So ladies and gentlemen, we have our reading assignments. Yeah. We have our homework. <laughs> no paper assignment, however. Uh, <laughs> 
This has been fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing your deep wisdom and expertise with our community on such a crucial issue. Jeff Carr, Karen Liebert, let's give them a nice round of applause. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you very much. This program, this program will be rebroadcast by KISU next Monday, April 4, at 7 p.m. So catch it again. Uh, and I hope we'll, uh, we'll be lucky enough to see you both back here for the next round of and discussions. And it's going to be, a, it's all settled and we're all pretty happy about it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> On behalf of the Alturas Institute and the City Club of Idaho Falls, thank you all for joining us. Take care. Good night. You've been listening to a special KISU broadcast recorded from the Idaho Falls City Club and Alturas Institute event held March 30th at University Place titled Russia's War on Ukraine. The presentation featured guest speakers Jeff Carr and Dr. Karen Liebert. If you missed part of this broadcast, you can find audio of the entire 90-minute program at KISU.org.